0: All right, you're going to want to listen to this episode. This is an awesome one. Dr. Stefan Abini is an orthopedic surgeon professor at UCSF. When I think of Stefan Abini, I think of Healthcare technology innovation within orthopedics. He's got his conference, Doc SF, which is absolutely fascinating. He brings in the technology side of the world and comes in with the doctors and healthcare side of the world. And there's the cross pollinization that happens. That's absolutely remarkable. His uh, concepts within arthroplasty and kinematics are amazing. We talk about artificial intelligence. Now that's going to work its way into healthcare as well this is a fascinating episode you're going to want to listen dr scott sigman hashtag follow the fro don't forget about the youtube channel as well
1: from medical media this is the auto show
0: Hello, world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon, here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast, where everyone knows we bring you the best of the best in orthopedics. I am super excited about today's episode. We have a remarkable individual orthopedic surgeon, also incredibly well known within the digital healthcare space, Stefan Abini, who is an orthopedic surgeon, professor of orthopedic surgery endowed at the UCSF, uh, who specializes in joint replacement and all things digital healthcare. What a pleasure to have you on, my friend
1: Scott. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. I got to throw out the shout out to Lara Win, who we, is a is a mutual respected friend of the two of ours, and she's so excited that we uh, made the connection and you could take the time out of your busy schedule. So, look, we always start at the beginning with the show. The show we like to talk about where you're from, where you grew up, and, you know, how did this whole orthopedic thing come come about? And you have a really sort of fascinating childhood. I'd love for you to share that with us as to how you eventually, you know, got here to the States for high school. But there was a bunch of stuff happening before then.
1: Right. So, look, I was born in Bologna, Italy, beautiful city in the northern Italy. And uh, my father was an architect, uh, an innov- innovator and pioneer in his day, and by around age nine, um, he came to the house one day and said, by the way, pack up your bags. We're leaving. We're going to Australia. I landed in Sydney knowing the three words, window, door, and blackboard. I spent the first <laughs> two years doing mathematics while I learned English, because that's all they let me do. And eventually, um, beautiful, beautiful experience in Australia. I I'll, I'll, I'll try to go back as often as I can. It's an amazing country. Uh, left there... Uh, nine years later to come to California and uh, again for my father's work and landed in San Francisco, which is another gorgeous city by another gorgeous bay. Very lucky, finished high school here. Um, Went to tremendous school. I was really happy there and uh, learned a ton And um, that landed me at Stanford University, uh, where I was a political science major. All my traveling had made me very keen about international politics, and that was what I was going to get into. International law was the thing that was, uh, and that's why I was a political science major. And one of my teachers uh, wound up being um, a major person in government, but it was interesting to to be there when she was just a a Young, a young buck in the faculty, but then I went off to um Italy one summer to visit a friend of my father's, who's a very famous gastroenterologist, who sat me down like all Italian professors will do and just give me a look and said, You're not gonna be a lawyer, you're gonna be a doctor. I'm like, I, I just painted a side of blood, man. I'm, I'm definitely not gonna be a doctor. So off he takes me to the hospital that day, and um, at 7 a.m. in the morning, I have gotten up that early at that time in my life ever, and um. It was a hot summer day and we went by some patient with a, two, you know, 20, 30 people following this professor in the hospital and they did a lumbar, I mean a lumbar lap, they did an um, abdominal tap and I fainted watching this needle going, that was my introduction to medicine. I was like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me. So later I went off to uh, Columbia and then um, finished uh, orthopedics. So that was what got my attention.
0: All right, so so that's it, that's fascinating. So I'm assuming your Italian is still outstanding. Uh, you
1: know, you have kept the language, I'm sure, with your parents and and all. I did. Plus, I did a fellowship at the Rizzoli Institute that really cemented things. Sure, no Australian
0: accent within your English, however, well, maybe a uh, twinge. So I, I,
1: I can put on mates so if you just want <laughs> to. Too, we can, we can go there too. All right, I figured we could get it out there if we needed
0: to. I love it. So, mm-hmm. all right, so you figure it out. Um, if you're a political science major, then you go and you work in Italy, and you decide, okay, medicine—you faint at the the, the abdominal tap, so, so GI stuff's not going to happen. But when, when did orthopedics come into play? I mean, where, how, did, what, yeah. who was your mentor? Where how did that start?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, maybe it was a rugby team at Columbia that I was in. <laughs> I was working half the team went into ortho. For me, it was a, it was plastics, neurosurgery, and orthopedics that got my attention. Plastics, it seemed to be as a, it was half psychiatry. Neurosurgery, the results were not that great. Orthopedics, everybody got well. It, I, the more I got exposed to it, and I did a, my first paper was in pediatrics, and I went into arthroplasty research. When I, I did it, I was pretty prolific as a medical student for those days. I like the idea that I can fix something that's well in a while. I don't want to track somebody for a lifetime to see how well my cardiology interventions worked. And I'm not not. It's wonderful those exact, uh, things happen, but. I was, just love the fact that I could fix things and make them happen. I think a lot of us get attracted to it by that sort of fix-it mentality.
0: Yeah, it's the demonstrable evidence of the work that you've done and the appreciation that your patients have in real time, right? If you treat somebody's blood pressure for 25 years and they don't get a stroke, I mean, it's great and everybody's happy. But if you can't walk because you've got hip arthritis and then you can get somebody to walk, and return to their work and their family and their environment. It's really quite gratifying. So I think that's always been a very common theme in the orthopedic surgeons that we we talk about. So so you're at Columbia. You're hanging out with
1: Billiani in the shoulder a that's little right. bit too while yeah, you I there. It was a young buck back then. I'm not that. I'm not that young myself. My friends. So.
0: Yes, I know our, our dear friend is Bill Levine. So then uh, you decide you're going to go back back home with the parents and go to residency at UCSF.
1: Yes, yes. I was very fortunate to get into the program. And you're right. I did move in with my mom the first year. Okay. Well, you're not getting paid anything. You're working 120 hours a week, right? I'm like, we were back then, my God, until my yeah. mother came home one day with a set of keys and said, I got you an apartment. <laughs> get out of here kid, get out of here, kid.
0: <laughs> pick up your towels when you're done
1: <laughs> yeah, my italian mother she really understood the american
0: Boy. way <laughs> i love it i love it i'm an italian wife so i completely get it um all right so but you're so you're you go back to ucsf your mom kicks you out you get an apartment uh when did you start recognizing that you know you had done some research as a medical student in arthroplasty we heard that did it seem like arthroplasty was going to be where you were going to be living in residency? Is that what really sort of honed in for you?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, like thanks to a mentor of mine, and he unfortunately just passed, uh, James O. Johnston, who was one of the the the, the, the early inventors of the whole specialty of musculoskeletal oncology. Um, I got very interested in oncology. I helped design the compress, which is a distal femoral device that is very innovative at the time with Dan Martin, who was the inventor, and Dr. Johnson was the clinical uh, driver of it, did a bunch of research on that. Um, but I was also a bit of a polymath far as I really enjoyed everything. I wrote papers on hand surgery. I, wrote, I just liked it all. And so when I actually came out of my, uh, even after I'd done my oncology fellowship, which I did continue to do, um, I chose to not pursue oncology. Um, We can come back to that. I went back into arthroplasty, which is my favorite part, but I did everything for the first decade of my career. I did everything, foot surgery, hand surgery, shoulders, shoulder replacement, rotator cuffs, ACLs. I mean, we're a different... It was a different era, different breed, if you will. I specialized as my orthopedic oncology skill set came to bear on revision arthroplasty. And so I went up doing more and more revisions. When you get more and more revisions, you start doing more primaries. And then at one point, I said, okay, well, this is all I'm going to do. And I started doing more and more uh, arthroplasty. Makes sense. And and so at this point, so you you did a fellowship as well, still in orthopedic
0: oncology in Bologna at the Rosoli Orthopedic Institute. And then you you came back and you took a job at Kaiser Permanente, right? Was that your first real job? That's right. Up in the San Francisco area as well.
1: Yeah, it was a bit of a confluence of events that just happened to drop me back in there. And what kept me at Kaiser, and um, it's fascinating, I landed at Kaiser Permanente in 1997. I didn't know at the time that it had been, had almost had to declare bankruptcy. It was not doing very well. Um, and the new president, a new CEO came in, a guy called Robert Pearl, plastic surgeon out of one of the facilities nearby us. And he came by our facility to give his vision of how he's going to rebuild the company and move us forward. And I have seldom been as enthusiastic about a leader to the point where, like, you know, wherever he goes, I go. I want to be here and watch and be part of this. And sure enough, I got the opportunity very early on in my career to have a number of leadership positions as he, Redesign redesigned and his team redesigned Kaiser Permanente to become, within a decade or so, the model for the nation that was widely touted as one of the ways we could move forward. And and as all the star ratings started coming out, suddenly went from what was considered a mediocre at best uh, alternative to probably the best healthcare uh, system in the country by some measures, uh, especially for the size it was. That process of change management uh, was fascinating to be part of and to watch. I got a chance to be chair of the department very early on in my career. Then I associate head of a hospital very early on in my career. Then I changed to a bigger hospital system. Then I got to be part of the group that ran 20 hospitals. Um, so we got a chance to work on things like moving the number of joints done in one room to keep up with increasing demand. So, we saw metrics coming around uh, 15% growth a year, which is what we were doing in the late 90s, early 2000s, as the boomers started hitting the 50s. Um, this growth was unprecedented. You have to double your capacity in a matter of seven years. And how do you do that? How do you do that across 20 hospitals with 5,000 employees? It's not an easy thing. It's not just arthroplasty surgeons, right? It's the entire ecosystem of people taking care of those patients from physical therapists to nurse on the floor to the beds availability. But to drop length of stay from four days is now in many facilities down to the same day, that was very deliberate, very um, designed, and very effective. Um, it was pretty impressive what we could do, and it was very gratifying. It turns out I really enjoyed systems thinking and sort of that large uh, leadership roles at, 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 at multi-institutional levels. That was, that I found compelling, even wrote a small book about what I learned in the process that was, um, I still think it's a pretty decent little tome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, no, pro- probably a very important uh, part of your foundation that's built you now to to your healthcare technology sector and that you've had that administrative role and the idea of sort of uh, the scalability of the things that we're trying to accomplish. We're big fans of Kaiser. Uh, we've had a lot of great orthopedic surgeons. Ron Navarro, I'm sure, is, uh, is, a, is a close friend of yours and colleague down south but still, you know, running a great program down in the Southern California area. So we've had four or five outstanding Kaiser Permanente's orthopedic surgeons on the Ortho Show alumni for sure. Um, so, yeah, so it seems like, you know, it's with your time at Kaiser, your 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 arthroplasty career is really blossoming at that point, really sort of becomes your focus. Uh, you become, you know, a, a major a part of AUKUS. American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. You're also very active in the American Academy of Orthopedic surgery as well in the, in the space of, of arthroplasty. And one of the things that there's been this sort of back and forth that's going on in the knee replacement world is how do you align the patient, right? Do you treat everybody the same and line them up the same way because that's how, you know, supposedly you're supposed to do it? Or do you leave them in some of their natural anatomy to allow hopefully, you know, better outcomes? I liken it to shoes. You know, I have like an extra wide foot and I I cannot get into the standard last of a regular shoe. I have to literally get extra wide shoes. Otherwise I can't wear them. So talk about your philosophy as to kinematics, which is the idea of trying to leave people in some of their anatomy versus making everybody the same.
1: Well, I'll take a step back on that one, but by the way, you can do a little lateral release on your shoe and you, your foot will just slide up. And leave <laughs> yeah,
0: no, nobody wants to see my bunions. I can assure you,
1: they, they got to keep them in the shoe. <laughs> That's all I've been doing of like 20, 30 years, right? These releases to make things work that don't work, but we'll come back to that. So one of the great things we did at Kaiser, we built a registry and I was very much involved with that from the very beginning of building the registry to collect data. And once I got a chance to um, to have that data, one of the reasons I got so involved with Academy and AUCUS and was because we were starting to publish more and more information from these data sets and asking questions that often went against the grain. Because I was very curious about challenging the assumptions or things that have been learning or have been taught earlier. So looking at unis, for example, one of the great little papers that came out of that research paper, that research set was that we're able to look at whether or not unis actually did worse than totals. Because you had these guys that did a lot of unis, say that they did great, a bunch of guys, and then the registry said they did poorly. So I got a registry where the data was the same. The unis didn't do as well. But when you looked at high volume surgeons who used implants that were that didn't fail, um, I can't adjust for the patients, but we saw the same results. It did great. So asking questions with data and challenging assumptions has been sort of part of my DNA, right? So fast forward to one of my earlier Uh, conferences that I ran at Kaiser and invited Stephen Howell to come speak. Uh, He gets me in the back of the room and says, listen, I got this idea. I want to show you. I'm learning, I'm creating these custom guides and uh, and the alignment we're trying to reach is not traditional. It's this. And I'm like, that makes so much sense to me personally, It's some. It, I get it. It took an ACL surgeon to come to arthroplasty and say, why are you guys releasing these ligaments? They're perfectly normal ligaments. I spent all my time reconstructing them. Why are you cutting them? Why don't you leave the knee where it was and restore native anatomy? Granted, adjusting for arthritis and cartilage loss. And it was, it was him that got me interested in, in alter, alternating the alignment techniques. So I started doing this in about 2013. December 2013 was my first one. And I watched Steve twice. I had to go see him twice before I really understood what he was doing. And within a month, I'm having physical therapists come say, hey, what are you doing differently? Because we don't have to worry about your patients getting stiff. We don't really have to see them for physical therapy, et cetera, et cetera. I just kept doing it, and the results uh, spoke for themselves in my hands but it was still very much con- very controversial i would go to meetings and i was it wasn't pleasant up on stage because you had people really taking you down um, not as bad as steve howell frankly he got he got the worst of it um, but fast forward to today um, if you go to a european meeting that's all you talk about it isn't no longer mechanical versus kinematic Is mechanical is done which version of kinematic is the right version? And I don't think we've had the answer to that yet, actually. And then there's question of what's the role of robotics and what's the role of predictive analytics in that? And then in that context also, well, what's the impact of the patient management strategy before and after surgery, right? So that's been a fascinating journey to be part of as well. No, interesting.
0: So for our listeners, I always like to make sure everybody understands. Um, so Kaiser was it a closed system was really unique in that you could capture the data for your patients in a registry. So you could follow them. You could see their outcomes. You could ask them how they were doing. You could see their x-rays, if they were failing or surviving. So what a cool thing to be able to do to capture all of that data and then be able to share it. And then a uni is a partial knee replacement where you only you know replace a portion of the knee versus a knee replacement. And it's always been dogma that unis always do better than total knees. Get a uni if you can, because the patients do better. But through you know looking at the data it does not lie you you reviewed it and you showed that there were similar outcomes and then what i think is totally fascinating for the listeners again what we would t- you know typically do and we've all been taught over decades and decades is that you make everybody the same 7 degrees of valgus which means a little bit of a knock knee approach and put and you change everybody to fit versus allowing everybody to keep their anatomy pretty much where they are, keep everything balanced, and then still put the knee replacement in. And that's where this sort of wave is. I do patient-specific instrumentation with J&J, and they are all over this at this point. They're probably a little late between you and I to the party, but they're still joining the party, which I think is fascinating. So you know, thank you for the time and energy and effort to sort of put that together, which I think is really important for, for orthopedics as we move forwards.
1: I was I a was, was senior J&J engineers and eight years ago, and they just wouldn't do it. They wouldn't go yeah. past degrees, but it wasn't the engineers that didn't want to do it. It was a concern that the FDA would come after them. And since then, the FDA has relaxed a bit looking at the data, and Steve Howell is very supportive of that. Thank you for uh, for catching me on those. Uh, it's funny you don't realize how how. Uh... Well,
0: I'm, I'm here for you, brother. I do this every week, and I got to make sure Judy can understand. So we're all good. So look, I want to move into some, one of the things that you've really
1: become incredibly well known for. Oh wait, to can the I point. make a
0: plug for one thing? Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. So, let's applaud. I always have a plug because
1: kinematic alignment and and personalized alignment and all the versions thereof needed a place. To, to grow. And, and Charles Riviere, myself, and Pascal Venditli launched the Personalized Arthroplasty Society last April with the whole idea of creating a space for conversation that is really focused entirely on alignment, but not just alignment, how to personalize the entire care pathway. Uh, for patients that may not fit the mold, not just anatomically, but culturally. Because we have a very European, more actually frankly in our world, US-centric approach to care and all the pathways around it are based based on a fee-for-service model where you're in the hospital for one day, but it doesn't really work if you try to transfer that to Europe with people in the hospital four or five days or Japan where they stay in the hospital for two weeks and where the amount of flexion of a knee is different. What's required for us for sitting versus someone in Southeast Asia is quite different. And so how do you create a community that can support and thinking through not just the alignment question, but the entire Personalization of care. And by the way, that leadership stuff that I did at Kaiser is really helping me. And also the work I did with Akas and Academy to be able to launch a society brand de novo. It's been really exciting.
0: So Grace is listening, the number one producer in all podcasts, and we're going to make sure that that information is included on the website for us so that people will be able to identify exactly where to go. So we, we love plugs on the ortho show, so we're going to make sure we get that one going <laughs> for you. Absolutely. All right, so let's move on, because when I think of uh, Stefano Obini, I think of digital innovation in orthopedic surgery. OK, you know, one day, I guess you just decided to wake up and, and start a meeting and which is ex- exceptionally well known now, Doc SF or Digital Orthopedic Conference of San Francisco started in 2016. You're the founder and chair. And so I want to talk a little bit about that and and really sort of your but where you see that we're going, et cetera, and all of that. So, so again, I mean, it's not easy to start a conference. Uh, obviously, you saw that there was a need for the conversation about a uh, uh, digital uh, space within orthopedics. So, tell us how you started it, and then we'll just, uh, you know, we'll work work into the conversation.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, my first company was in 1997 when I came back from my fellowship in Italy. The world was blowing up in California. It was it was so exciting. There was uh, everybody was coming up with ideas, so I had to join in the fun. That company never lost money, but never worked out, and we moved on. Um, and I decided to refocus on healthcare. I was doing some on the side, but nothing major. We had a crazy idea that patients would rate doctors, but we were laughed out of the room. We had a crazy idea that patients would look online for information about healthcare, we were laughed out of the room. When was this 97? 97, 98 those companies were bit, were founded founded and funded but a year earlier it made no sense to anybody it's so well the, inter- the internet had just started at that point it was really. so new it was incredible i can i still remember the feeling of being on the edge of this wave that was about to break on the shore that's a california metaphor but it was phenomenal it was phenomenal um so onwards though i decided to, to double back on healthcare and i did uh, did that but in 2013 14 and I started working with a small company to look at using um, cell phones and video to do patient care perioperatively at home. And super successful, started presenting this information at, at tech conferences where I would be in front of thousands of people whose entire world was how to change healthcare from the outside in. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> have you guys ever been to Academy or AUKUS or ATAOA or any other meetings? And like, no, they didn't know what they were. And so here I was straddling these two worlds. One of the clinics, I was still writing a lot about clinical care, clinical orthopedics and length of stay papers and all this other stuff. And and the other side, I'm, I'm writing about digital innovation. And I'm like, there needs to be a place for people to talk to each other, right? Where a CEO of a hospital can sit next to a venture capitalist, a, a physician can sit with the startup guy and share their visions of the world because one of the things that became eminently clear as I was living in these two spaces, they were almost living in different realities. Their perspective on a given topic was orthogonal to the way we looked at it. And so we saw different things. They saw different opportunities. They saw different challenges. And it was an opportunity, necessary opportunity to bring us together. And it wasn't happening at the existing meetings. They weren't really designed for that. So we happened in San Francisco to host the JP Morgan Conference, which is a very famous conference, was originally around biotech, but started increasingly include digital health uh, talks, et cetera, and people and companies. We said, let's see if we can do a collaborative event, an event where we can bring the ecosystem together and to talk about these ideas. And we were fortunate to be funded and supported by the large manufacturers and in so doing, we launched the Digital Orthopedics Conference in San Francisco. And the first actual event was 2017. And what we did was we had um, mostly technology companies on stage and physicians mostly asking questions. Um, we had insurers, we had any, any point is put these people in the room. People started changing jobs. People started saying, "This is uh, you've changed the way I think about everything. I'm going to start a company now. Because they suddenly got a chance to take another perspective. It wasn't another surgeon telling them their perspective of what's happening in, today would be AI. Back then it was robotics and telehealth. It was somebody building these platforms saying, by the way, I'm making these tools available for you. This is a problem I think I can solve for you. And by the way, this is how you can eventually make money at it. Because everybody has to have that aspect of it, too. If you take a look at all other aspects of our life,
0: right, you can have a 12-year-old sit there with a cell phone and, and just have access to incredible things all right there. But yet, within healthcare, you know, for a while there, we were still writing on paper. You know, it was a big deal to even go to EMR and digital stuff, which had a lot of competition. But so many of the really cool technical technological things that we use on a day-to-day basis did not make their way into healthcare. And I think it's finally really made a change. One of the things I think that has really been a big difference, I think is the pandemic was a great equalizer for technology and healthcare, especially with telemedicine and the concept and ideas that, you know, people aren't going in to work or going to the medical office or whatnot. So really sort of a a fascinating sort of a way in which you've sort of really changed the paradigm to communicate with one another and then exchange ideas and, and then amazing things happen. So, so, what what digital innovation right now is getting Dr. Beanie excited in healthcare and orthopedics?
1: It's going to be very uh, unoriginal, but I literally am about to start a degree, a degree or whatever I can get my hands on in AI. By that I mean understanding better how to code, because this new set of tools that we've been presented that seem to be taking the world by storm, which is chat GPT. Uh, and the chat part is attached to GPT. And what makes it interesting? The GPT part's been around for a while, making a UI, a user interface that people can suddenly access very easily is what all of a sudden turned AI into the, the topic it is today. It's worth taking a second because it's so topical right now to understand why foundation models are so powerful and why they're not machine learning algorithms. So, you take a machine learning algorithm, you're basically taking a, a set of data, asking a computer to look at that data and ask, look for patterns in that data. And then you can optimize the software to look for specific patterns and optimize for them. OK, that means that every time you write a complex algorithm like that, it's going to be use case dependent. You're devising it for a use case, to sell more product, to create a photograph, to optimize an image. Great. We've done a lot of that, and it's changed the world as we know it. What foundation models can do, they can take a very large idea, like language or photography, images, voice, and then it can answer questions along any number of opportunities, right? So you can take a foundation model, that could be a large language model, any number of models, and apply it to, say, a company, you can ask it to do three things. Ask how how to optimize sales for that particular vehicle that you you just designed. Understand where the production bottlenecks are for that vehicle, and help you design a better one next time. It's the same model. That's what makes it crazy powerful. And then how you train it is a whole different question mark. But that's the step function that we're seeing now with these foundation models. And by the way, they're already starting to become yesterday's news. There are even new models that are more interesting coming out. To me, there's nothing in our lifetime that's going to be as impactful as this, Scott. And I don't think it's hyperbole actually and it's not necessarily going to hit us first in medicine like everything is going to take a long time i think these models are going to start hurting us more in everything from politics to marketing and in there's some other stuff that's going to happen now that's not going to be very pretty so that you can start looking as as a researcher you may have a spreadsheet of data instead of having to come up with a formula you can ask in simple language what is the percentage of patients in this subset of patients who is going to have a revision not how many people have had surgery at this time frame, but then you do the math later. Just ask him straight up and he'll figure out how to figure out what which ones are gonna revision. So being able to try to um, to query the world around us, the digital world around us anyway, in a way that is done through a natural language interface, is really, really powerful. So I think that is the biggest thing. Now to us right now. Everybody's thinking of robotics as technology. I hate to, th- I don't think of robotics as technology. Maybe the AI algorithm behind that, that is trying to tell you how to position the components in the shoulder or whatever, that is technology. The robot itself is an actuator with a machine behind it. So it's not that exciting anymore. Um, augmented reality and its impact on our, our interface with the operating room is going to be really fun to watch. Um, the cost has to come down a bit before it becomes appropriate to transfer because we can do a lot of these things ourselves without needing this technology. Um, So I don't know where you want to go with the technology side. We run a whole conference on it, but we can go a long way. But I think the biggest issue, the big thing, the big, big thing on that that will change all our lives is these new foundation models.
0: Yeah, that's terrific. I mean, I've had some personal experience with Caliber AI as an arthroscopist, right? So if you could take thirty thousand shoulder arthroscopies, feed it in the computer, and then learn, and then be able to be in the operating room, and then identify anatomy, or how would Paul Favorito do this rotator cuff repair? You know, being able to to help you to provide additional information to make you even better at
1: what you do. Yeah, there's an interesting story. A friend of mine used to run Google uh, Google's uh, robotics program. Their robots. Once they got them figured, they did a lot of repetitive function in, in virtual reality, so they get good at it. Uh, but then they put them in the wild. And if any robot linked to the system made a mistake, every other robot would never make the same mistake again. Right. So we're getting awesome. to the point where we start getting to that sort of question like, hey, listen, Scott, I'm going to learn from all your mistakes. You learn from all my mistakes. And the two of us will be better because of it.
0: Yeah, that's super cool. That just is a great way to describe it for sure. Um All right. Let's talk about one more thing. And then we've sort of got uh, we're getting close, but I could talk to you for at least another three days. This is fascinating. You know, you and I are connected a little bit with gate science and we can talk a little bit about that. Uh, But one of the things that I found as I was about ready uh, to to potentially invest in gate or, you know, be an advisor, uh, the whole SVB bank catastrophe happened, which I know that you have to be living in that space, right? That bank was the bank for technology. And uh, so many uh, companies were so you know affected by that process. Can you give us a short description as to you know sort of how that went down and really
1: how it affected the, the people that you work with every day? Silicon Valley Bank was almost a textbook case of how not to run a bank, right? They didn't cover their bets, essentially, bottom line. And uh, they, had a, they, had a, they had a call on their, on their funds. And so the way it went down though was on Friday, I was on a call with a uh, startup, um, a venture-backed startup with several million dollars at Silicon Valley Bank. And they were gonna come to Doc .SF and so we're a quick interview about what they're gonna talk about. And as we're talking, she's like, I am not sure I can even make payroll on Monday. I mean, like we didn't know what's gonna happen. So it was lived as a very, very um, uh, almost like an earthquake around here. When it comes and it just flattens everything for a second. And fortunately, it wasn't a bad one, but you started waiting for the shakes to stop to see what the damage was. And uh, fortunately, the, uh, the bank was salvaged and their assets as well. And so what happened was it was quickly forgotten. I mean, I think that in terms of the impact it has, it was whoop and then straight down again. Um, and actually, we had a very nice discussion about Silicon Valley Bank at DocSF this year with Dr. Nancy Lynch, uh, who's an md MBA that works with us every year on DocSF. And on the Wednesday morning session that's all available online at our website, you can go listen to um, her, uh, as, a, as a venture capitalist, um, her take on what happened and what how it impacted the economy locally. But at the end, it didn't have much of an impact other than to wake people up a little bit to the... Um, the importance of regulation on these banks that, that, that the market is not gonna support them. Yeah, no,
0: unfortunately, we have short memories. And I think honestly, I think the they did the government did a pretty good job on this one. I think that they smoothed it out pretty good. You know, JP Morgan just came in and rescued first republic. So it seems to me like we're not getting a lot of reports at this moment about additional banks uh having issues. So hopefully that's the case.
1: Yeah, and then you had the Swiss bank that also had the issues, right? So those are the big three that failed. Miser- massively and they were too big to fail at some level and not so big they couldn't be saved easily without too much um, too much damage to the economy so you're right I think we, we dodged a bit of a bullet there all
0: right so let's so I you know I I always label myself as the original opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon and sort of a big fan of all the things that we can do to try and minimize opioids I'm a big fan of gate science I know you're a scientific advisor for them as well what's your experience there expectations uh, what do you see going on there
1: Yeah, we're both a little conflicted on this one, but we're conflicted for a reason. We both believe in the concept. And I think that uh, fundamentally, um, it has the opportunity to be, um, you know, game change is a little too strong. But I think it definitely will be something that will be um, an enabling technology and enable us to move closer and closer to the ability to transfer even more care to the outpatient setting without concerns about these blocks wearing off. Because those of us who've done outpatient surgery, you have done lots of it out there. It's great. The patient post-op day one, or even day zero, is just super. They don't mind going home. They feel great until they get home. Then you know, all the blocks wear off and for some patients, it's a pretty miserable experience. And it's not something we can continue, even the the long acting drugs and even the on cue pumps, what have you, they do have a short timeline. Whereas this is the ability for us to impact the neural pathways uh, Without non-invasively and controlling the pain for a very prolonged period of time and allow us to really enable our patients to be at home for their post-operative care. So I think it's a very strong enabling technology. But what gets me interested is we've never had the ability to really measure pain other than the occasional subjective perception of pain. Where the App that sits on top of this technology, which essentially depolarizes the nerve and keeps it from firing, works is that we'll be able to see how patients dial it up and down. Are there circadian rhythms to pain? Are there certain activity levels that are associated with increased pain? Are certain activity levels that actually decrease pain? Are certain positions that are better for pain than others? We can measure all that by adding some sensors to patients as we see them through and be able to actually collect real time, longitudinal data on patient's perception of pain as they interact with the interface of this technology. So to me, that's a super, super important aspect of this, which will enable us to create algorithms that will support patient care and personalize it. But this idea, we're not all built the same.
0: You no, know, I think that's wonderful and really trying to create and fill the efficacy gap that we see at this point for post-operative pain management. But what you eloquently just said is so important. And as a researcher, your entire career, you sort of <laughs> read between the tea leaves there. But I think that's really important to identify the pathways of pain for the individual. And again, technology, a patient being able to control their pain and the modulation of their activities with their own cell phone. Again, the technology aspect of it is really quite remarkable. You know, Stefano, this has been fantastic. We really want to thank you for your time and energy, your innovation within the arthroplasty space, your movement towards kinematics, the vision uh, to bring technology together with medicine in a way in which people can interact. I think is really absolutely remarkable, and we can't thank you enough for all you have done and for your time today.
1: Well, Scott, you've done a great job yourself bringing this uh, information to your audience, and it's uh, it's a pleasure to watch you grow and wish you the best success, and thank you so much for having me on, on board with you.
0: Oh, it is my great pleasure. This is Dr. Scott Zygman, hashtag follow the fro, host of The Ortho Show. Till next time.